0: Chapter Fourteen of The Escape of a Princess Pat by George Pearson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, mikevendetti.com. Chapter Fourteen: Away Again. Simmons and Brumley, together with my companion of the first escape, had determined to make a break for it with me and although we were not quite ready at this time, the addition of the extra guards forced our decision. We had a scanty supply of biscuits saved up, and I wielded a file from a friendly Russian. Simmons got a map from a Frenchman, and we secured a watch from a Belgian. With this international outfit, we were ready, except that we lacked a sufficient store of food. However, there was no help for that. The logger was twelve feet high, barbed-wire enclosure, eighty feet wide and three hundred feet long, with the hut occupying the greater part of the central space. There was sufficient room below the bottom wire to permit the trained dogs to get in and out, At us. They patrolled the four-foot lane that enclosed the logger and wandered up and down it, their tongues out, always on the alert. They were as well confined as we were, since the outer wall of the wire was built down close to the ground they were very savage, and seemed instinctively to regard us as enemies, as all good German dogs should. The sworn evidence of prisoners exchanged since my escape mentioned that in one case an imbecile Belgian was daily led out to the fields, wrapped up in several layers of clothes, and then set upon by the dogs under the guidance of their guards. This was for the better instruction of the dogs. At each corner of the logger there hung an arc-light. The sphere of light from those at the end did not quite meet, and so left a small shadow in the center of the end fence. As soon as night came we arranged that six other men should walk to and fro from the end of the hut to the shadow at the wire, as though for exercise. Others, ourselves included, clustered round the end of the hut. I watched my chance, and when the moment seemed favorable I fell into step beside the promenaders we swung boldly out intent apparently on nothing our arrival at the inner wire synchronized with that of one of the guards beyond the outer wire we turned about without appearing to have seen him still walking briskly we reached the hut and turned again the guard's back was now turned he was walking away at his present rate of travel he should be twenty yards off when we next reached the wire we dared not chance suspicion by slackening our gait, my heart stopped as we reached the shadow, I fell prone and lay motionless. No dogs were in sight. Niagara pounded in my ears, but no hostile sound indicated that I had been observed. I dragged myself carefully and under the clearance left for the dogs until my cap brushed the lower wires of the main and outer fence. My feet still projected beyond the inner wire into the main enclosure so that on their next trip, One of my comrades inadvertently touched my foot, startling me. I held the strand in my left hand and fell to filing with my right, so that at the snap there should be no noisy rebound of the spring-like wire. A post was on my right, and, the wire having been nailed to it, I was safe from this danger on that side. The sound of the tramp of those faithful feet receded, but the sound of them came strongly back to me like a message of hope. By the time they were back once more, I had cut through three strands and was crawling cautiously towards my objective—a pile of peat, two hundred yards distant, which seemed to offer cover as a breathing spot and starting point. On the signal from the promenaders that I was through the wire, Simmons followed, and after him Brumley. The other man lived up to the example he had previously set for himself. He drew back in alarm and refused to make the attempt. With twenty-five guards all about, and some only thirty feet away, the very impudence of the plan offered our only hope of success. I still lacked fifty yards of the peat-heap when I heard three shots, next the dogs, and then the general outcry which followed the direction of Brumley. I rose to my feet and ran. We had already mapped out our course in advance by daylight for such a contingency, so I struck boldly out. I was still in the swamp to my knees, and under these conditions even the short start we had might prove sufficient, since our pursuers would also bog down. The swamp was intersected by a series of small ditches and scattered bushes, which added to the difficulty of the passage. I heard Brumley frowning and swearing behind, and went back to pull him out of the bottomless ditch. Simmons joined us while I was still struggling with him. An hour later Brumley's legs played out we could still make out the lights of the logger. It was vitally necessary to push on, so we encouraged him as best we could, and managed somehow to reach the edge of the swamp by daylight. We put ourselves on the meager rations our store allowed, one biscuit for breakfast and another for supper, with a bit of chocolate on the side. We had apparently outdistanced the pursuit. We prayed that our friends might not be too severely punished for their part in our escape. We lay in the heather all day, soaked to the skin with the brackish water of the swamp, the odor of which hung to our clothes. It was January and very cold, and sleep was impossible under such conditions. We nibbled our tiny rations and stuck out as darkness came. Our plan was to go straight across country, but Brumley could not navigate the rough going of the fields, although on the level roads he made out fairly well. So we chanced it on the latter brumley was struggling along manfully but his legs caused him great suffering it was about two o'clock in the morning we lay to in the shadow of a clump of trees at the roadside thinking to ease him a bit he flung himself down simmons massaged brumley's leg whilst i watched we had just said come on and they were rising to their feet when another figure stepped off the road and in amongst our trees it was so dark where we stood that he probably would not have seen us had not brumley at that very moment been rising to his feet he appeared as much surprised as we were and stared back as though in amazement and then without more ado he turned and fled the way he had come whilst we made up what haste we could in the opposite direction all equally alarmed who he was or what he wanted we could only surmise If he was not also an escaped prisoner, then he must have been badly wanted by the authorities to have been traveling in such a fashion at such an hour, and, above all, to have been so alarmed by his chance meeting with fugitives. In any case, we wished him luck and promptly forgot about him. Later on in the night our road led us directly into a village. We hesitated as to what we should do. Brumley was for pushing through. The alternative was to go around and through the fields lose valuable time and play out brumley's precious legs it was past midnight so we decided on the village route and started on we passed through without being molested but just as we were leaving the other side some civilians saw us and shouted halt and other words meaning to shoot we paid no attention espying a wood in the distance we struck out for it brumley was in misery and threw up the sponge We stopped to argue with him at the same time, dragging him along, and, while doing so, saw two more civilians rushing up and shouting as they came. Lights began to spring up all over the village. Brumley stopped dead and refused to go further. We had previously agreed that if anything should happen to any one of us, the others were to push on, every man for himself. No good could be gained by fighting, when we were so hopelessly outnumbered. So, Simmons and I rushed into the woods, swung around and out again and lay down on the edge of it in time to see them take brumley and come sweeping by us in hot pursuit the main body stopped only for a moment to inspect their capture gathering around poor brumley so that we could not at first see what had happened to him then several of them started back towards the village with him limping along at their side ten yards away a knot of them gathered and assisted another up into a tree to watch for us they handed him a rifle and the pursuit went on into the woods occasionally we heard the sentinel stirring we scarcely breathed it seemed impossible that he could not hear the pounding of our hearts we grew quite stiff in our cramped positions but feared to shift a limb and waited for three-quarters of an hour before we dared to worm our way cautiously in the other direction the snap of a twig was like that of a rifle in the stillness of the night once we stopped thinking that certainly he had heard us. It was only the beat of a nightbird's wings. We dared take only an inch at a time, sliding forward on our bellies and then waiting. We met another sentry further up, but worked around him in safety and with more ease, as we were by this time on our feet. Arriving at the end of the small wood, we walked boldly across the intervening fields to another one, large enough to afford cover for an Army Corps and there felt comparatively safe. We were, however, very wet and cold, and altogether miserable, buoyed up only by the liberty ahead. As it was only two o'clock, we pushed on for several hours before stopping to lie by for the day. For days we carried on without discovery. Each night was a repetition of the preceding one, an inevitable fighting of our way through dark forests into and out of sloppy ditches over fields and through thorny hedges dodging the lights of villages we went solely by the stars which simmons understood after a fashion and aided by our map we held fairly well to our general direction we had no other sources of information other than our own good sense we watched the sky ahead at night for the glow which might indicate to us the size of the community ahead And aided by a close observation of railroads, telegraph wires, and the quality of wagon roads and the quantity of travel on them, we were able to form fairly accurate estimates of where we were and which places to avoid except on unfrequented byways, we traveled by the fields, hugging the roads from a distance. This made travel arduous, but safer. At that, we were sometimes spoken to in neighborly greeting. We grunted indifferently in reply, as an unsociable man might when, as sometimes happened, people rose up in front of us from gateways or hidden roads. It was very disconcerting. On such occasions only the darkness saved us, for we took no chances whatsoever where there were lights. It was really harder in the daytime, when, try as we might, we could not count on avoiding, for our hiding place, the scene of some laborer's toil, or perhaps the covert of some child's play. We slept by turns, with one always on guard. It was difficult, indeed, for the guard not to neglect his duty. So utterly weary were we. The lying position we needed to retain all day long aided that tendency, and yet we were always so wet and cold that real sleep was difficult to secure. In this district the swamps were numerous and difficult to cross, the small ditches and canals that drained them, or the almost equally swampy fields added to our grief. The feet slipped back at each muddy step. We fell into ditches. Dogs barked. And we almost wept. Once a dog helped us by his barking. It was night and we were crossing a very bad swamp. An old peat bog which was full of the ditches and holes that the peat had been taken from. These were full of black water which merged so naturally into the prevailing darkness that we repeatedly fell into them. We floundered out of one only to fall into another uncertain where we were going and lost to all sense of direction there was no vestige of track or road it was then that the dog barked we stopped to listen conversing in low tones certainly we thought the dog must be near a house and that meant dry land and a footing so we advanced in the direction of the sound stopping to listen to each fresh outburst so as to make certain that we should not approach too closely apparently he had smelt us on the wind Before we reached the dog we felt a solid ground underfoot, and were off once more, at a tangent from the sound of his barking. The swamps were a great trouble to us, as were some of the other fields, so cut by ditches and hedges, where they had yet in order to avoid the roads and wires we frequently had to lay a circuitous route to avoid those obstacles or else chance the road, which we would not do. Often, when we could see our course lying straight ahead, on the road we put about, and tacked off and away from it, because a parallel course was impossible on account of the swampy nature of the ground. With these bad places passed, we could perhaps pull back to our true course again, but only after double the travel that should have been necessary. However, we did not mind that so much, nor did we greatly mind the short rations we were on. The other privations were just too severe for us to notice these minor ones. The worst was the continual state of wetness and the resultant coldness of our bodies. It was not so bad at night when we were walking, and so kept our blood circulating, but by day it was very bad. We used to pray for night and the end of our enforced rest. We were never dry or warm, but always very cold and miserable. The sun on those rare occasions when it came forth did not appear until ten or eleven in the morning. By mid-afternoon it was again a thing of the past. At best it was very weak, and we had to hide in the bushes where it could not reach us. All we could do was to take off one garment at a time, and thrust it cautiously out near the edge of our hiding-place to some spot on which the sun shone. Under these conditions we grew steadily weaker on our allowance of two biscuits a day, for at that time of year precluded the possibility of there being any crops for us to fall back upon for food and it was too risky a proceeding to attempt to steal from the householders on the eighth day we reached the river we had no difficulty in recognizing it as it was the only large one on our map that lay on the route we had chosen and we had passed nothing even faintly resembling it with the exception of some large canals which were easily recognizable as such in which we had swum We made out trees, which appeared to be on the other shore. We regretfully decided that it was too late to attempt the crossing that night. The daylight proved the line of trees to be merely the tops of a flooded woodland. The shore was a good quarter of a mile away. It was January. The water was cold and full of floating ice, and very swift. Fording was out of the question. For two days and nights we wandered up and down the bank, vainly seeking a boat or raft which to make a crossing we finally discovered a large barge which was submerged except for its flood-time arches there was no sign of life and it looked safe so we proceeded across we discovered however that we had not reached the bridge proper but were merely on the approach to it we dropped off into the main steel portion the wind beat the cold rain against us so that we could neither see nor hear however we went on and were nearly across when suddenly a light flashed on us and we heard a startled Halt! we could barely make out the mass of buildings that indicated the line of the shore it seemed too bad to throw up the sponge so easily i said under my breath to simmons we'll push right on and loudly hollander thinking we might perhaps get far enough away to make a run for it but there was no show it was too far to the shore there was a shouted command and the clutter of rifle bolts striking home it was no use we stopped and shouted that we would not run and then waited while they advanced towards us the elderly landstromers guarding the bridge gathered us in and took us over to their guard-room at the hotel we judged the incident to be an epoch in the monotony of their soldierly duties they were very good to us two of them moved away from the fire to make room for our wet misery and they gave us a pot of boiling water two bivouac cocoa tablets and a loaf of black bread the news spread and civilians dropped in to stare at and question us In the morning the entire population came out to see the Englander prisoners. We learned that we were only four miles from Holland, and cursed aloud. The town was late and when the next morning we discovered that it was gaily bedecked with flags and bunting, we decided that we were indeed parsonages of note, if it would cause such a celebration. However, it was only the Kaiser's birthday. On the afternoon they took us by rail to Meppen and shoved us in the civilian jail where we were allowed a daily ration of two ounces of black bread, one pint of gruel, and three-quarters of a pint of coffee for two days, until, on January 13th, an escort came from Venmore. they roped us together with a clothesline arm to arm, and marched us through the principal streets by a roundabout route to the station, so that all might see. We were unwashed, unshaven, and so altogether disreputable as to satisfy the most violent hatred. Such, for instance, as we found here. It did not require our pride to keep our hearts up, or to keep us from feeling the humiliation of so cruel an ordeal. We simply did not experience the painful sensations that such a processing would ordinarily arouse in the breast of any man. Just as after a heavy shell-fire no man feels either fear or courage, he is too dazed and stupid for either. Many spat at us. And good old Englander schwein came from every side. It seemed like meeting an old friend. After a few days away from it, the faces of those people were different from those we had left at camp. But their hearts were the same. They lined the streets and jeered at us. But we were too tired or hungry to care. End of chapter 14